And if you're not familiar with the passage tonight we're going to be looking at, you'll see how those songs go right along with where we're going to be at tonight. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. So, very important announcement. I will make this announcement again at the end, just so we all know. Obviously, next Tuesday is Christmas. The following Tuesday is New Year's. But because of scheduling conflicts with Basha, we also will not be meeting on the 8th or the 15th of January. So the next time we will meet here in the cafeteria for Bible study on Tuesday night will be Tuesday, January the 22nd. Tuesday, January the 22nd. Mark that day on your calendars. And here's what else I want to say about that particular night. Beginning at 6.30 till 7 o'clock that night, we're going to have pizza here, okay? So we're going to have a big pizza party to sort of kick off the new year and coming back on January the 22nd. And when we come back on January the 22nd, we're going to pick it right up in Luke chapter 16. We are not going to miss a beat. We're going to go all the way through the gospel of Luke. One more thing while I think about it. If a couple of gentlemen wouldn't mind after we get all this stuff uh put away tonight helping Kendall get back over to the storage unit. I, I don't want Kendall to be uh, walking across the campus by herself later this evening. All right. Luke 15. Before we get into this chapter tonight, I'm going to share with you my personal perspective of why I interpret it the way that I do. There's two really different primary ways, I guess, not so much to interpret it. I should use the word application. Um, a lot of people, when they come to the parables that Jesus is, is sharing with us in this chapter, they apply them uh, as God dealing with those who are lost, unbelievers, okay? And I'm not saying that that's wrong to apply it that way. But I want you to know right up front that the way I'm primarily applying this passage is that I think it applies to those uh, that Jesus already has within his family, his sheep, that after becoming a Christian and being part of the family, they have wandered away. And that this chapter is not so much talking about salvation, it's talking about restoration. Which goes right along with what we've been talking about uh, in, on Sunday. I told, I told Lisa, my wife, I said, I didn't even realize this myself. My message on Sunday out of Hebrews was on restoration. Then if any of you read my blog, that I do a weekly blog on one of the Psalms. And Psalm 51 this past week was on the God of restoration that I put out on Monday. And now tonight... Uh, we're talking about restoration as well. So God must be wanting to, you know, share something about restoration with us here lately. So before then we get into it, I, I wanted to take these first two verses before Jesus actually shares with us the parables. I want to look at these first two verses because it sort of gives us the setting of Jesus' teachings tonight. Notice... 
Luke writes, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And everything that Jesus now is going to share with us in this passage does talk to us about the foundation or from the foundation of God welcoming sinners. Now again, that's why you can apply this passage certainly to unbelievers and, and, and you know, reaching the lost and going after the lost. No doubt about it. But I think you can also, and I think as you see as we get further into this passage, you're going to see that this passage also can be very much applied to the, to the uh, restoration that God brings about, even within those who are already His children. A couple of things I put there in the notes. First of all, notice that sinners are the ones paying attention to what Jesus said. The words coming mean to draw near. It reminds us of James. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. They were drawing near to Jesus to hear Him, to listen to Him. They were teachable. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And the interesting thing is, why were they interested in what Jesus had to say? I think because they were willing to acknowledge they had a need. That, that they, they had issues, they had situations that, that Jesus may have the answer for. The contrast is the religious leaders who weren't teachable, they, they weren't listening to Jesus because they thought they were okay before God. They, they didn't think that they needed anything else. And, and in you and I, even as children of God, we've always got to keep that spirit of teachableness and humility and, and willing to draw near and listen to Jesus and listen to God's word and continue to grow. And, and you see this contrast here as, as sort of the setting of why Jesus shares these parables, because in these parables... Uh, these different groups of people, in a sense, are going to be represented by people that Jesus uses in the parable. And then, at the end of verse 2, again, their whole complaint, which, by the way, that word complaining in the English is the Greek to murmur. They were always murmuring underneath their breath at what Jesus was doing. And their complaint was, this man welcomes sinners. The word welcome means to receive, to accept, to give access to sinners. And the religious leaders of Israel had a problem with that. See, in their mind, you and I, they were more spiritual because they stayed away from sinners. And if Jesus was truly spiritual, then he would stay away from sinners too. But Jesus always gave access, welcomed, received sinners. And you and I are who we are tonight because Jesus welcomes sinners. And we have to figure out a way in our own lives to welcome sinners. How does that look to us? Because... Obviously, we've got, to, we've got to be careful. The Bible clearly talks about how we can't get involved in relationships without realizing that those relationships are either going to draw us closer to God or they're going to pull us from God. 
And, and so we, we do have to use caution. We, we, we can't allow relationships, no matter how we justify it, to pull us away from Christ. And so, for instance, in our interaction with unbelievers, we must always maintain a balance of God does want us around unbelievers. If, if we're never around unbelievers, if we're not welcoming sinners to some degree, then they can never see the reality of Christ in our lives. They can never see the light of God within us that we need to shine to them. But at the same time, we've got to be careful that in that relationship, how we're interacting and how we're relating to each other isn't causing damage to my own personal walk with Christ as well. But I think far too often, many times as Christians, we can tend, if we're not careful, to sort of get into our holy huddle and isolate ourselves from the very people that God actually left us on earth to be a light to. And we need to, as a church, and we need to, as individual Christians, figure out ways of welcoming, receiving, and giving access to sinners. So that they can see Jesus Christ. And we can be a witness to them. And that's exactly what was happening here. By the way, too, I, I want to talk about this for a moment. This is so important. Because here at the Oasis, eating is very important to us. <laughs> and you'll notice as part of Jesus' fellowship, that he welcomed them by eating with them. Now let me tell you though why that's significant. To us, we can sit down with people and we can eat with them and we don't put it on the same level that eating was in Jesus' day. And yet, I don't necessarily want our church to go back and, and go back 2,000 years ago to that, but, but I do want us to realize that part of the reason why we have potlucks and why we do encourage others to, to gather together in fellowship and eat meals together was because in biblical times, it was more than just filling our belly and having company while we were doing it. The concept was that when you sat down to eat with somebody, you were becoming one with them. In fact, even in the way they ate in biblical times showed that. For instance, today in our day and age, everybody that eats a meal even together, they have their own plate and they have their own food. In Jesus' day, if you were at a meal with a group of people, you all tore off a piece of bread from the same loaf of bread. You all pulled out stuff from the same bowl. You ate from the same... I know you germaphobes are going, oh my golly, you know. Glad I'm living now instead of 2,000 years ago, you know. But, but that's the way they ate. They ate out of community bowls. They ate out of, out of the same bread. They drank out of the same cup. I know the backwash would be... No, we won't get that <laughs> And, and the, whole, the whole picture was that when you ate with somebody, you were becoming one with them. And that's again why the, the religious leaders are like, ooh, how could Jesus do this with these sinners? So, in light of that, Jesus told them this parable. 
He says, which one of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go look for the one that is lost until he finds it? Then when he has found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Returning home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, telling them, rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. First of all, I put there in the notes, sheep are easily distracted and prone to wander. (laughs) And I think that's why Jesus uses the illustration. But I want to point this out too. Even in the, the, the kind of people that Jesus uses in these parables... He's trying, to, he's trying to show the religious leaders, in a sense, how wrong they are because shepherds were despised by the religious leaders of Israel. And then the next one he uses, beginning in verse 8, is this woman who would have been looked down upon by the religious leaders of Israel too. So the shepherd and the woman. And yet in this passage again, Jesus is saying, hey, there are times where the sheep It's not the fault of the shepherd. It's not like he's not being a good shepherd, a good leader. But the sheep may tend to get distracted and wander off and find their way uh, isolated and distanced and separated, not only from the shepherd, but from the rest of the flock. Now, the main thing that Jesus is teaching here, again, in relationship to welcoming sinners, is this. Jesus takes the initiative in seeking a separated sheep. In verse 4, the word go look for, literally means to pursue. To pursue with intent, to pursue with focus. I mean, Jesus isn't just like, you know, no, he, he's very intent on finding those who have gotten lost and gotten separated from the rest of the flock. And, I don't want to take too much time, but in leaving the 99, we get the impression that a responsible shepherd would have made provision for the other 99. It wasn't like he was just hoping that they would be okay while he was gone, but the idea is if one sheep got separated, the good shepherd is going to pursue that sheep until he finds it. I believe God does the same thing with us. Then the Bible says about the loving care that Jesus has for his sheep. Because it says when he has found it, he literally places it, he sets it, he lays it on his shoulders and literally carries it and bears it rejoicing. In other words... It's not a burden for this shepherd, Jesus Christ, to even every once in a while, not just lead his sheep, but literally at times, throw his sheep on his shoulders and carry them. I want you to remember that tonight. I mean, certainly there are times where Jesus is leading and we're following. But there are other times in critical times and seasons of our life, where Jesus literally picks us up, throws us on his shoulders, if you will, and literally carries us. And again, it's not, it's not grudgingly. It's not a burden. No, he does it rejoicing. He's glad to carry us 
and bear us on his shoulders. That's the kind of shepherd that we have. Now again, in these parables also, one of the things that Jesus keeps coming back to that the religious leaders of Israel are missing and why they're missing the whole point of him welcoming sinners and going after sinners and even restoring people is because restoration, anytime, either a sinner, an unbeliever comes to faith in Christ or a child of God is restored back to fellowship and back to the flock and back to the shepherd... However you want to apply this, restoration should always bring joy. Always. In fact, you'll notice in verse 6, in this parable, he says, returning home, he can't wait to call together his friends, neighbors, and telling them, rejoice with me. It again, reminds me of the community and the family of believers that we should have and that we should always have fellow Christians in our lives that, that are willing to rejoice with us when others are being restored. That we can celebrate together. That we grieve when others are grieving, but that we rejoice when others are rejoicing. And it's nice to know as Christians that when you know, we, we, we try to call on each other when things are going rough and ask each other to pray for one another and all of that. But it's also just as important when, when something is really good and when uh, some great blessing has come and especially when someone maybe is turning their life around and God is working in their life, that we have somebody that we can call on and say, will you rejoice with me, not just pray with me? Can we take part in others' joy? That's exactly what the word rejoice in verse 66 means. And then Jesus went on and as he told the parable to say, because I have found my sheep that was lost. By the way, the word found there means to find after diligent searching. The shepherd was willing to diligently search so that he could restore this sheep back to the fold. Then he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. Again, I think he's even talking to the religious leaders here. There's joy in heaven over restoration but it's because these people see their need and they know that they need to change. Where those of you that are complaining and murmuring, you don't think you need to change. And then he tells them another parable. What woman, verse 8, if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them? The word lose means a state of separation or distance. Does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search thoroughly until she finds it. Then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Very similar. And that's because Jesus is trying to emphasize several things. First of all, you'll notice here, as he does in the other one, God highly values each and every one. We see that in verse 7. And then even as you come down to this next part, 
If he's willing to leave 99 and go after one, if, if she was willing to go after one of the ten silver coins, it, it reminds us that God cares about each one of us and values us. You and I need to see ourselves from God's perspective. In fact, as I studied this passage, I had to remind myself of, that, that, about my view of God. I think this chapter will help solidify how I look at God and how I view Him. I think this chapter helps us view how we should view ourselves. And I think this chapter helps us to view how we should view others the way God views them. So it's a great chapter to go back to over and over again. Again, you'll notice Jesus goes to great lengths to restore what has been lost. We got that through the words, search thoroughly there again in verse 8. When she lit the lamp, swept the house, and searched thoroughly until she found it. When you and I are maybe praying for an unsaved person. We've got to understand, God is going to great lengths trying to draw that person to Him. And when you and I see a Christian, one of His sheep who's wandered off the path, you and I have to understand and remind ourselves, God cares about them more than we do. He's doing everything possible to try to turn them back around. Just because we might not see it or sense it doesn't mean that God, in a way that only God can, and maybe at a level that only God can, and speaking to that person's heart or to that person's mind, man, He is going after them because God loves to restore. He is the God of restoration. He wants to bring things back together again. And again, here in this parable, just like, the lost sheep, Jesus reveals heaven's response over restoration. And notice in verse 10, something very, I think, important. The Bible doesn't say that the angels rejoice when one is restored. The Bible says that there is joy in the presence of God's angels. In other words, those who are rejoicing up in heaven aren't the angels. They are the redeemed of God who've died and went to heaven. Because they're the ones who can get it. Angels don't understand salvation. They don't even understand restoration. But the people of God, the saints of God who died and went to heaven, they're the ones who's filling heaven with joy. Every one of us probably has family members and friends in heaven right now. They have a party every time there's restoration up there. They love to hear that someone has been restored and brought back. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. There's gladness. There's rejoicing in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. By the way, just to point this out as well, because I put it there in the notes, restoration, though, begins with repentance. And repentance means to change one's mind in order to change my direction. 
And God was reminding me as, as I studied through this how I need to take change seriously. Even as a child of God, there are obvious things in my life that, that need to change. And I need to be willing to get serious about change. Because that's the only way, in a sense, that the fruits of repentance are really going to be seen. Too, too often we'll say, yeah, I'm going to change, or, you know, we make all these good intentions, and especially this time of year, you know, you hear the whole yada yada about, you know, you gained weight over the holidays, and now it'll be everybody to get back on the whole exercise thing and watching what they eat the first of the year, and New Year's resolutions and all that. And, and we all know that, Many, if not most, of all the resolutions and things and the intents, good intentions, but do we ever really follow through? One of the things that God is teaching me is that if something needs to change in my life, and God is showing me what needs to change, then I need to get serious about that. That's what repentance really is. Maybe there's something right now in your life tonight that God is speaking to you about, that He wants you to get serious about. And then, my favorite one of the chapter is obviously probably the most familiar, too. The parable of the lost son, or many people have titled this over the years, the prodigal son. So then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare? But here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. I want to stop there. I want to talk about this younger son. First of all, I want to give you a little background here that I think will even make Jesus' words a little bit even more weighty and powerful. And Jesus doesn't paint this younger son in a good light at all. By doing what he did, he actually broke custom with what was proper and right in that day by going to his father before his father ever died and basically saying, uh, give me what's coming to me when you die, I'm out of here. It was literally a public insult to his father, even, to his family, to do what he did. And because he was the younger son, not the older son, he was only going to get one-third of the inheritance anyway. The older son was going to get two-thirds, and that'll come in to play a little bit later. So he takes one-third of his father's inheritance. His father didn't fight him on it. His father gave it to him. And the Bible says he went, left on a journey, went to a distant country, and there he squandered 
verse 13. That's where we get the word prodigal from. The word prodigal is a word that means to waste, to squander. And that's exactly what he did. He was wasteful with what he had been given, what had been entrusted to him. And he did it because he was living a wild lifestyle, verse 13. The word wild lifestyle in the Greek means an abandoned lifestyle, an unrestrained, a reckless lifestyle, if you will. There was no thought of being a good steward, a good manager, very wasteful about what he had been given, which that's a message in and of itself. Then it says in verse 14, after he had spent everything, the word spent there means a cost. In other words, Jesus is also reminding us that there's always a cost for our choices. Whatever choices we make, there's a cost, there's a price to be paid. We talked about that on the positive end last week. When we talked about Jesus saying, hey, before you want to become a disciple of mine, count the cost, in a sense, a good thing. But here he's reminding us that even when we pursue something we shouldn't, there's a cost involved. There's a price to be paid. And of course, the young man didn't take into account that there might be a famine or something come up unexpected. And so he began to be in need. He began to be left behind, to be lacking. And he went and worked and literally fed pigs, which, again, to a Jewish person, oh my goodness. You know, it's again, it's just a reminder of the lowest of the low. He had sunk to the bottom of all that he had been given. He then, when he got to such a place, verse 16, began to long to even eat in a sense, the carob pods that the pigs were eating and he couldn't find anything. So he came to his senses. You'll notice there I put in the notes, in the very first line there under the parable of the lost son, the younger son wanted to find himself but ended up losing himself. Why do I say that? Because the word senses here in verse 17 literally in the Greek means himself. In other words... It's literally saying he came back to himself. While he had left his father's house and went after the lifestyle that he wanted to try, he literally lost himself trying to find himself. And that's a great thought because that's exactly what we see people doing when they reject God's will for their life. They think that somehow in order to really find themselves, I got to live my life the way I want to. I got to be the Lord of my life. I got to call the shots. I got to do what I want to do. And when I do that, I'll, I'll come to the end of that road and I will find myself. And in actuality, when you and I separate ourselves from the creator, from the one who created us and has that perfect plan and purpose for our life, and when we're trying to escape his will, instead of finding ourselves on that road or that journey, we actually lose ourselves and become further and further separated from who God created us to be. And that's exactly what happened here to the younger son. You and I know that to be true if that was ever true in our life, where we became the prodigal and wandered away from God. Or we've seen it in other people who've wandered away from God as well. Thinking that they were going to find themselves, they actually lost themselves. But the younger son did repent and humble himself. 
I mean, he says, you know, when he came to his senses, he, he says, look, I got to get up. I got to go back to my father and say, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Verse 18. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's very serious here, and, and he understands, in a sense, I think, at least a little bit of the magnitude of, of the wrong choices that he made. But notice what I put there that I thought was very important. The younger son, though, didn't understand the heart of the father. Why? Because the younger son thought that by his behavior, that somehow he had lost a relationship with his father. This is so important. He never lost the relationship with his father. He lost fellowship with his father. And there's the difference. And this is what I try to get folks to see whenever, you know, we're discussing things like eternal security, which, yes, I personally believe. But I try to share with people that the verses and passages that you're using to try to prove that a person can lose their salvation, I'm just sharing with you the way I look at those passages. They're not teaching relationship. They're teaching the loss of fellowship. And that's totally different. Because once a person has been born into the family, you can't change the relationship no matter what. The fellowship can be damaged, the fellowship can be broken, but the relationship can never change. Look at yourself. I use myself as an example. I was born 51 years ago to Bob and Shirley Royce. I was their son. I will always be their son, no matter what. There's not a thing I can do to go back and not be their son. Now, through that 51 years, especially 30 years ago or so, there were many times where the fellowship between Jeff and Bob and Shirley weren't very good. But the relationship was always there. And the younger son didn't understand that he was still the father's son no matter how bad he had acted. He thought somehow he was going to have to become something less than a son when he repented and returned home. No. You're still the son. You're still the son. And many Christians today, even after they become a Christian, they may make choices in their life or decisions or go down a path that is very damaging and destructive. And somehow they feel like there's no way I could ever go back and that God, you know, that I could ever be anything for God. And somehow they don't, they, they think like the younger son that, that, you know, I'll, I'll never be able to be anything. And I think the father's saying, no, you're still my son or daughter. That never changed. And you and I have to be willing to understand more and more the heart of God and the heart of the father. Now, you'll notice in this passage, the Father's firm yet compassionate stand. I love this. Because one of the th keys, I think, into getting the younger son to turn around was the Father never enabled his son. He never ran after his son. He never tried to make it easy for his son. But he was always going to be there if his son chose to repent and return. That's important. Because the 
Father understood that it was only going to be through the pain of suffering the consequences of his bad choices that he might get to a point where as he experiences that great pain, that it turns him around. If he tries to rescue his son and somehow spare him from that pain, then he'll never truly repent and turn. And that's why I put there in the notes, we've got to understand the Father's firm yet compassionate stand. And it's a great example for you and I when we're dealing with our children or fellow Christians or whatever. That we're there for you when you want to get your life back together again, but we're not going to make this easy for you. Because in making it easy for you, somehow we're going to circumvent what God's trying to do through the pain of your choices and consequences of your choices. But notice, when the son came back and had repented, notice the father's loving acceptance and restoration. And I can't even do this justice, but I just want to share some exciting things with you. First of all, in verse 20, the Bible says, When he got up, the son, and went to his father while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him. Which then that tells me something. Even though the father hadn't chased after the son, the father's heart was always connected to that son. And his heart was always with his son, even though he was physically far away. And he was always looking for him to return. And then the Bible says his heart did go out to him. It literally means, this is a word I've told you about before. It means to be moved in the bowels and intestines. This father was moved when he saw his son coming back home. There was compassion there. He ran. He didn't walk to his son. He ran. He rushed and hugged. And the word hugged here literally means to squeeze the life out of. And then the Bible says he kissed him. And again, you can't get this. When the Bible says he kissed him, it means he kissed him again and again and again and again and never stopped kissing his son. He was so glad that his son had repented and returned. This is the heart of God. This is what Jesus is trying to get people to see. This is who God is. This is why He welcomes sinners. Because He loves to see people come into a right relationship with Him and be restored. And then I love this. He said, the Son said to Him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against You. I'm no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Notice the Father doesn't debate that with Him. The father doesn't sit there and say, oh, yes, son, you're, no, you don't understand. No, the father just starts acting in love. And the father says to his slaves, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. What would have been the best robe in that household? The father's robe. The father put his robe on his stinky son who hadn't had a chance to bathe yet, who had been slopping around with the pigs. Notice the father doesn't say to the son, you got to get all cleaned up first before I... No, all it took was the younger son being willing to come back and repent. And the father's robe went around and wrapped around that son in all of his filth. The cleansing part would come later. Now it was just rejoicing that he had returned and become part of the family again. And then he says put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. When you do a fatted calf, it's the whole town's invited. 
This wasn't just a family celebration. This was a town celebration. Let us eat and celebrate because the son of mine was dead. The word literally means lifeless and is alive again. The word alive means to be restored, revived, recovered. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Notice there's something very important that I put there in the notes. The younger son found everything he'd been looking for elsewhere at home with his father. That's what you and I need to realize. Anytime we try to seek what we think we're really looking for outside of the Father, outside of God, outside of what we already have in Jesus Christ, we're going to come up empty every time. What we're really looking for is just to cultivate the relationship with God we've already got. In Christ we are complete, Paul says in Colossians 2.10. In Him we've been given all spiritual blessings. Jesus is sufficient. We, we don't need to look outside of Jesus Christ for anything. Everything we have at home with Him. And that's exactly what the younger son found. Give me two minutes, I'll wrap this up. The older son was a picture of the religious leaders. Because the older son here had a formal, distant relationship with his father. Even though he stayed home, unlike the younger son, there were really two prodigal sons, if you will, in this story, not one. There was the prodigal son that left the home, but there was also, in a sense, the prodigal son that was still at home. Because this relationship that he had with his father was cold. There was nothing warm about this relationship. He complains about the fact that you never did this for me and you never, you know, uh, slaughtered the fatted calf for me and called my friends and all of this. And he's feeling very sorry for himself. And he talks about, you know, I've been your slave all these years. And he, he looks at his relationship with his father, not as a loving relationship, but out of duty and obligation which is the way the religious people in Jesus' day were looking at their relationship with God. And the older son was out of harmony with his father because he was unwilling to welcome his younger brother back. In fact, if you can read it there, he even doesn't call him his brother anymore. He calls, when he talks to his father about his younger brother, he calls him your son. Because just like sometimes we have a hard time with, when someone has done something wrong, or especially someone's done something wrong to us or hurt us, and they've repented, and God has forgiven and restored it, somehow we resent that. It's like, God, they didn't get theirs. Because the older son doesn't understand grace. All he can think about is, this guy, this, this younger brother of mine went out and wasted all of his inheritance, he needs to continue to pay consequences. And here you are, the father, you're just showering him with all this stuff to welcome him back and making it act like everything's okay. Now, that's not what he was doing. But Jesus is trying to show here, he's just glad when people turn around and come back to him. He'll take care of all that other stuff later. But the heart of the older son was totally out of harmony with his father. Even though he had lived with his father all those years, just like the religious leaders, had been around God 
and the worship of God and the Word of God all those years, they totally were out of harmony with God in how they were looking at things. How they were looking at God, how they were looking at themselves, how they were looking at others. And the older son failed to appreciate his privileged position. Notice the father said in verse 31, Son, which implies an intimate relationship, you are always with me. And everything that belongs to me is yours. And let's not forget what I said at the beginning. Because he was the older son, he was going to get two-thirds of the inheritance and that wasn't going to change no matter what the younger son did or what the father did to the younger son. In other words, the older son wasn't going to have to sacrifice one thing to welcome that younger brother back. And somehow he still wasn't willing to do it. And the father was like, everything I have is always yours anyway. You're here. But... You're just looking at things all wrong. You're looking at things out of a cold, distant, formal relationship rather than a loving relationship with your father. And then obviously, just like the other two parables, Jesus ends by talking about how God celebrates all who repent and return. When in verse 32, the father says to the older son, it was appropriate, it was right and proper to celebrate and be glad for your brother because he was dead. Literally, it means he was being destroyed. And now he's alive. He's enjoying real life. He was lost and now he's found. And in these parables, Jesus is telling the religious leaders why he welcomes sinners. Because God is a God who loves to restore. He loves to bring back he loves to revive. He loves to refresh. He loves to recover that which is lost. Before we close tonight, again, I think this passage is a great passage that helps us solidify how we view God. Is our view of God a right biblical view of God? Or just even like the younger son? Do we really not know the heart of our Father and how He welcome sinners? And then, how do we view ourselves? Do we view ourselves as so valuable and significant that God would do whatever it took to restore us and bring us back to Him? And then how do we view others? Especially when they fail and they fall and they sin and they may squander and waste so much. If they're willing to repent and come back, do we just welcome them back and rejoice that they're back like the father did, like the woman did, like the shepherd did, or do we resent them coming back because somehow we feel like there should be more than just grace involved in welcoming someone back? Folks, I've enjoyed this study up to this point. I'm looking forward to Getting it started back again on January the what? 22nd, okay? And uh, don't forget, if a couple of you could help Kendall get back over to the storage unit, look forward to seeing many of you on Sunday. If not, I will see many of you five weeks from now on January the 22nd. Don't forget, 6.30 that night, come for some pizza. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these parables of Jesus. Thank you for all the truths and principles that you teach us in this passage. 
And Lord, there's so much here that we all really need to go home and, and read this again and look at it again and study it again and meditate on it again because, Lord, there's so much going on here in this passage. But God, there may be something that the Holy Spirit wants us to just settle on tonight. And I pray, God, that you would help us to settle on something tonight out of this passage. Something, Lord, that we may be challenged with or something, Lord, that we can be encouraged by. Whatever it is, Lord, we, we know that your Holy Spirit will take your word and will apply it to our lives as we need it. Go with us, Lord, these weeks that we're going to be apart on Tuesday nights. I pray that you'll give us a very profitable five weeks where we're continuing to grow and get into your word so that when we come back and pick up our study of Luke in January, that it'll just be a fabulous time as we finish out our study of this great gospel. Go with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. Have a great